listening to the Journey Home Podcast. Welcome to the Journey Home Podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. My guest today is David Smallwood. David is a therapist with over 20 years experience specializing in working with addiction, codependency, and childhood trauma. He worked as a treatment director at Promise South Kensington, Priory Hospital North London, and the Kusnacht practice in Switzerland. He is the author of Who Says I'm an Addict, which is available from all major book retailers. I first saw David speak at a Nick Hazel conference earlier in 2023. Nick, as any of my regular listeners will recall, was an early guest on The Journey Home, and he puts on really fantastic conferences with a really wide range of, of speakers, primarily around the topics of addiction and trauma. And I'd heard about David. He's a quite a known figure in the therapeutic community, um, but I'd never met him. And I remember David's talk sort of came after lunch, and often I find in you know, any kind of training or talks, attention spans sort of wandering, feeling a bit tired after lunch, so just sitting down, and I was just immediately captivated with him. It was like, wow, I really like what this guy's saying. And it was kind of more than what he was just saying. It was just his presence, just really authentic, really genuine, which I have always really connected to. So to get him on was a real privilege for me. Um, and I felt like I learned so much from him. I mean, as you'll hear, we, we cover a variety of areas. You know, we talk about what led him to becoming a therapist. Um, he talks really openly about his own recovery, uh, coming out as gay, writing the book, Who Says I'm an Addict, which I'll put a link to in the episode description, where conventional treatment for addiction goes wrong, perhaps, or rather, has a fear of going deeper um, and actually looking sort of below the addiction. You know, I, I referenced, the, which I have done quite a lot on this podcast, the, the iceberg analogy, you know, this kind of idea that substance addictions, gambling, sex, you know, these kind of things of these tangible addictions, I guess, if you will, but, but underneath this original pain, codependency, which is something that we, we speak about quite a lot, trauma, how that's often fueling it and, and David sort of says about you know the importance of you have to deal with the tip stuff to get to the the root you know you can't go the other way around but actually you know essentially like just going and dealing with say alcoholism it may not be enough um he says a lot about his experience of recovery um you know really great to hear you know his kind of authenticity um and we talk a lot about, as I said, codependency. Um, you know, he he told me how he often thinks, you know, attachment is just another word for codependence. Um, how his life was changed by attending a conference by Pia Melody. You know, the uncomfortableness of that, which I, I certainly recognize, you know, going deep, it, it's, it's tough. Talking about his experience, you know, before that, working at the Priory Hospital North London and just seeing... Uh, patients, clients with really seemingly really great recovery. They were clean, they were sober, they were working a program of recovery and they would leave and relapse. And he was really confused by this and, and actually just this almost like eureka moment in when he kind of connected with Pia Melody's work around needing to work with the underneath, the, the codependency, the fractured attachment. Um, so yeah, we, co- we covered a lot and I really really valued his authenticity something he says you know he brings himself to the work that can be controversial in some schools but for him it's really important and yeah i really enjoyed it i hope that you get something out of it so without further ado here's my conversation with david smallwood i'm here with david smallwood david thanks for joining me today pleasure nice to see you i wonder if you could talk a bit about what led you to becoming a therapist so it coincided with uh, me coming out um, the closet. Um, I had been in recovery for 10 years, um, and I got recovery um, whilst running a pub, which is not the best occupation for an alcoholic, but nevertheless. So I got sober at 36, 46. It just became ridiculous, and I had to sort of tell my wife that 
I was, was gay. Yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't figure out what I was to do having declared I'm gay. So I, one thing that I was certain of, I didn't want to be in the pub trade anymore. I had 10 years of it in sobriety, and, and it was just mind sapping So I asked around. I went to, to started going to gay AA meetings. One of the girls there said, oh, you should talk to this guy, meaning Dr. Robert Lefever. So I called Robert, and um, he said, well, we haven't got any, any, um, any jobs at the moment, but come over and see me. So I went over to South Kensington, this um, surgery, and um, about 40 minutes later, I came out with, well, probably a bit more than 40 minutes, but about an hour later, I came out with a job. It meant giving up my job, my home, everything. and. Um, I, I I took the plunge, not knowing whether I could do it or not, but you know, wanting not wanting to be in the space I was in, mm. and having just come out in London, then I was transported to Nonington in Kent, which, if it had a gay community, it didn't make itself known to me. <laughs> but but I I I persevered, and I I I decided that whatever needed doing, I would do. And so I was starting again. I was starting a completely different life at 46, which was quite daunting. And it just got better and better. I had no money, um, so I couldn't crave things. I, um, I, I just concentrated on doing what, what, they, what they told me to do, or asked me to do. And um, partway through this, this process, Robert suggested that, that some qualifications might be useful. Um, so we embarked on a, um, a counseling course, mm. a diploma course, and did that. And then I said to um, a guy called Jeffrey Stevenson, professor, uh, emeritus professor of psychology at Kent and Canterbury University, whether I could do a, um, you know, is it feasible I could do an undergraduate degree? And um, he looked into it and said, uh, I don't think that's appropriate, but we'll, we'll get you on a master's course. So they created a, a master's course, which is still running, mm. run by the South Bank, and we started off with about 20 people, and um, they advertised it, and it was great. And uh, it, was, it was challenging, because I fundamentally thought I was a bit thick. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I sort of um, I got through life by using, you know, subterfusion bullshit. And... <laughs> yeah. um, and to my amazement, I found that, you know, I understood what was going on. Um, and that was the start of my career as a therapist, really. It has been incredibly rewarding, but incredibly challenging as well. Yeah. No, I really hear that. And such an amazing story. So you were quite literally talking about that master's uh, program, which, yeah, I've, I think it's the South Bank one, the, the addiction yeah. psychology, uh, which is... Yeah as far as I understand, a thriving program now. So you were at the, the I was right at the start. Course. About 20 to start off with, and actually three people completed the master's degree. Wow. And then it was in conjunction with um, Greenwich University. It's such an incredible journey, and I wonder, had you ever had any experience of counselling before that? What, what was your experience of counselling? So you'd spoken about recovery, getting into recovery. As far as therapy goes... What was your experience? My, my therapy consisted of being um, a barroom lawyer. Right. You know I mean? Yeah. I, I'm a landlord of a pub, so people automatically respect what a landlord says. And, that, and I, I found, actually, that on reflection, that lots of people came to me with their problems. And being a raging codependent, I yes. tried to fix all of them. Um, yeah. Well, measurably in a, in a lot of cases. But, but it gave me the appetite for, for helping people. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's so important, and I, I certainly hear that. Um, it's, it's really clear in your message, and when I've heard you speak before, um, I guess Carl Jung's notion of the wounded healer comes to mind as we're talking, that sort of being compelled to work with those who are wounded, as we ourselves have experienced this. So I'm, I'm seeing you nodding your head. Uh, is that something you subscribe to? Oh, absolutely, yes. I think that not all, but quite a lot of people who go into therapy counseling go in it to fix themselves um, and understandably because if you can't make sense of the world mm. and uh, that comes on to the sort of latest uh, iteration of my my, um, my process 
Um, if yeah. you can't make sense of the world and you don't know why you feel the way you feel, then therapy is a good place to look. You know, I, I said at the conference, uh, the Hegel conference, that I think, you know, have we got it all wrong? Has the traditional way of dealing with addiction been um, looking in the wrong direction? And I think we have. Could you could you um, say a bit more on that? Because there was something you know I was going to ask you about perceived dogma, perceived ways of working that perhaps, uh, of course, are really important. Um, but yeah, maybe now is a good time to actually bring that in um, if it feels okay. What sure. do you what do you feel? And maybe it's good to have both sides. What do you feel is we're doing right, and where do you feel we've still got to go as as therapists, but also I guess in any kind of therapeutic community, perhaps. Well, most. Most um, treatment centres, facilities, tend to go down a 12-step route. And I got sober with a 12-step programme in AA, and it saved my life, no question. But, you know, to think that AA has all the answers, and, and don't get me wrong, I have absolute respect and love for for AA. It's it's the reason I'm sitting here. Yeah. Um, but... It, it is limited in its ability, and um, you know what tends to happen is is that twelve-step programs get like in, into a situation where they think anything can be fixed with a twelve-step program, or any the answer to everything is in the big book. Well, it's, it's you know palpable nonsense. It yeah. can't possibly be the case. So the dogma um, um, irritates me a bit. Um, I, I guess I can best describe the dogma as um, if something goes wrong. It's your fault. And if something goes right, God did it. Uh, and, you know, and the nonsense that, that goes on around that, people actually claiming um, that, that God helps them on a, on a daily basis you know, with, and puts things in their way, to me seems incredible um, because I can't believe that a drunk like me is important enough for God to find me a parking space, for instance. Yeah. While at the same time ignoring five million children dying from preventable uh, problems every year. And I, you know, I'm really glad. It seems like we've we've got there pretty quickly. But in a way, I, when I was thinking about speaking to you, it was something I was thinking about and thinking, oh, how will we speak about this? How can we speak about this in a way that is balanced, not you know, not giving one side or the other? But it's something I find myself thinking about. And um, you mentioned codependency, and it may be now that some of the questions come about in a more random fashion, but I'm I'm going to roll with that. I'm sure it'll make sense. With something like dogma or there is a right or wrong way, but from my sort of understanding experience, sometimes when things are life or death, there may not be the chance. It may not be helpful to say, well, let's take a moment, you know, let's let's kind of go into a mindful experience because it's quite literally life or death. So I totally get that with addiction. What I made up from what you were saying, and certainly I guess this is how I feel, with things like codependency, fractured attachment, shame-based disorders, all that stuff, often which is sort of at the root of many addictions, right? Um, is there a risk then that if there is that dogma, it inadvertently gives the message that one school is better than another, a message that that person, a client, someone in recovery, anyone, they may have experienced that in their childhood. You are wrong. This is right. And actually, you know, and perhaps I'm kind of channeling some of my own stuff there, but it could perhaps be detrimental to further recovery. I mean, does that resonate for you at all? Yes, absolutely. Because the the approach can be, it's my way or the highway. Yeah. And if you can't take on board the 12-step program, then there's something wrong with you not with the program. And I take a slightly different tack, and that is that there's always a way to get through to somebody yeah. unless they've got a severe mental problem which prevents them. And, and some people have. Um, yeah. But um, you need to sort of roll with the, with the, the questions, with you know, the, the problems. Uh, when somebody manifests with um, anger or frustration, if you meet that anger and frustration with anger and frustration, then nobody's getting any better. Yeah. You need to see it as a coping mechanism, I believe. Yeah. We all have coping mechanisms that aren't good for us. And, you know, um, the, the coping mechanism is for deep-rooted codependency. And people manifest in different ways. Now, if you are completely blitzed 
Um, you, you know, they talk about the gift of, of desperation. If you're desperate, then you'll take it on board regardless. But that doesn't mean that it's, um, that it's that therapeutic, that, you know, a, a drowning man reaches out for anything. Getting a hold of, of, of something which is fundamentally wonderful, but getting the wrong end of the stick of it um, keeps people in sort of perpetual problems because, you know, you need to feel, I think, so, so let me just give you a, um, um, sure, please. the reason I've got, I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying. Mankind has been around on this planet for about 4 million years and um, a million years ago. Uh, so they, they found the skull of a um, uh, hominid in Ethiopia, Australopithecus, I think, um, 3.8, 4.2 million years old. The, the previous oldest one was a very famous um, skull of a little girl called Lucy found by the Leakey family. Anyway, so we know we've been around on the planet in some form for about four million. Now, fast forward to 1.1 million years ago, we became upright, Homo erectus. And then 70,000 years ago, we walked off the savannah in Africa to save our lives, which mm. we nearly became extinct. There is a process, and the reason we survived and Neanderthals and Magnums didn't, um, I think, which is collaboration. You know, we collaborated, we were smarter, um, and we, we formed ourselves into tribes. Now, you can readily see all the, the issues around being in a tribe, but one of the, 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 the fundamental reasons why we survived is because we belonged. Yeah. And in your, in your brain, um, Two, two bits I'm interested in are your cognitive brain, cortex, and then um, your limbic system, specifically a little bit called the amygdala. Yes. And we, we pride ourselves on being, you know, sort of educated and intelligent and, and developed, but we're not that developed because if, you, if it's triggered, your amygdala has the ability to switch off your cortex completely. Yeah. It can hijack it. So, you know, I'm in charge. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like where we think we can think ourselves out of stuff, we've kind of not got a hope in those moments. And you can see why it is that yeah. worldwide people can't get on because when their amygdala's tri triggered, they only see the enemy. So that, that process kept us safe for those four million years. Mm -hmm. It's still operating there as we speak. You know? Yeah. Um, um, and the $64,000 question is, what, why, why does somebody develop addiction and some people don't? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it, it's a coping mechanism because if you are, let's say that some people are more sensitive than others. If you're sensitive and you, you are unfortunate enough to grow up in a household that is less than nurturing, mm -hmm. not intentionally. You know, yeah. Mostly there's no intention to harm, but harm can be done. So, for instance, in my case, because I'm gay, um, mm. you know, if you are born gay and you grow up in a heterosexual household by definition, yeah. um, you, you very quickly know that you, you don't quite fit in. If you, if you don't fit in, then you are outside the herd. And being outside of the herd means that your limbic system, your amygdala, is on high alert, quite flight or freeze. It can put you into a, a state of anxiety, anger, frustration, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and we tend to look then for coping mechanisms. So a really good coping mechanism is achieving. So, you know, <clears throat> about three or four years ago, about 40% of my clients in my practice were ex Oxbridge. Now, 40%, you know, like officially, I, you know, I, I ought to have more on every five years or something. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's a high percentage, so, yeah. Uh, so achieving is, is a way of coping. Um, being depressed is a way of coping and feeling less than frightened, which is my process. Being aggressive is a coping mechanism. If you, Just, you yeah. see a guy with tattoos on his face, you're looking at somebody that's fundamentally frightened and 
uses tattoos to keep people away. It's like, don't mess with me, I'm dangerous. And for you with that, because this is, again, such an important area, and you mentioned this in your book, which I'm going to come on to, but I think, again, so important, almost trying to talk ourselves out of this and forgetting the whole body the nervous system, all the, all the science, I guess. It, it, as you're speaking, I'm I'm thinking it's very sort of biopsychosocial stuff. Yes. If we ignore one, it's going to be really hard to kind of move forward in a way because it has to come into it, even if it's not the thing. It, it all it all plays a part. And when you were speaking there about your experience, which I can't imagine how how tough that must have been, thinking back to the cave people, you know, if if, mm. if someone felt under threat and they were ousted from the tribe, I guess. You know, and not being a scientist, it's probably a bit more limited, my knowledge, but my understanding is that's where things like shame and stuff developed. It was actually to protect, you know, if I'm outside, I might not survive the night, so I better better adapt to this and make sure I can get back in there and they accept me. But, and I suppose this links in with us, the amazingness and the genius of our brains, but also it can kind of trap us a bit. And we've evolved so much since then. We're continuing to evolve. I had uh, Paul Gilbert, who's the, the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy, talks about, he was on the, the podcast, he talks about that sort of old and new brains, the tricky brains. Um, I wonder if that kind of comes up for you or comes into this for you. Absolutely. Um, because unless that you're very, very aware, you don't know how much your primitive, your amygdala, yeah. Yeah. The, the very old part of our brain, how much that's influencing what we think. Yeah. Because so. it's, it's working all the time. It's very, very, you know, attuned to, to threats. It's a really interesting one, like you mentioning about the Oxbridge and the achieving. And again, without going off on too much of a tangent, that idea of dogma, there's a kind of, you know, I'm aware that can sometimes apply to suffering in the sense of if you've come from this background, okay, suffering is just, but actually sometimes it's the same, it's the flip side of the same coin, right? I guess, which is somebody may have born into extreme poverty and had to adapt, but actually someone born into unimaginable wealth, the pressure to achieve, I'm guessing all that kind of, the amygdala doesn't necessarily know I'm poor, I'm rich. I'm, I mean, and, and you can tell me this, but the sort of I'm gay, I'm straight. I mean, does that, it's it's adapting to what is is that absolutely yeah. so it, it's it only knows threat yeah um and um th there's a, a lovely if anybody's interested there's a, yeah. a, a, a little lovely um there's a little clip on youtube called the still face experiment yeah and it's very short about five minutes and what it shows is what happens to an interaction between a little girl who's a year old yeah. and her mother. And they, they start off by interacting and smiling and looking into each other's eyes. And then the, the mother is asked to not respond patiently to the child. Oh, yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and in, a, in, in a very, very short space of time, the child becomes traumatized, becomes you know, yeah. uh, distressed. So think about what happens when your parent is not available full time what do you yeah. do yeah you know you've got to be distressed what do you do and you know most people find a coping mechanism so you know going back to, to therapy um, mm -hmm. you you still see um treatment centers saying they deal with drugs and alcohol i don't see how any treatment center can just deal with one part of coping mechanism yeah because you know, saying we can't deal with eating disorders, well, tough, because you're going to get them. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's it's a process addiction, gambling, sex, whatever, or whether it's a substance. You know, any of those are possible for an addict. Only a matter of, of exposure to them and the yeah. ability to pick them up. Totally. And that that's a, a kind of a great segue into a question I wanted to ask you. So I, I often think of, um, I don't know if people have seen this, because it's, it's not a visual podcast, but the iceberg analogy, and I touched on that earlier. So physical addictions being the tip of the iceberg, and then often attachment issues, process addictions, codependency, trauma, et al. are at the root. Talk about your experience of this, because you were sort of talking a bit about that, but why is that being not acknowledged in, in the way that you're kind of 
explaining is well it has to be what's happening there and, and what's your experience around working with that and how we can treat that better i think that it frightens people right so people saying we don't deal with this is out of fear not out of bloody mindedness or indifference yeah it's out of fear because people fear that that eating disorders are too difficult especially our exit um, and they don't know how to deal with gambling addiction or shopping. Uh, so, you know, in America, uh, they've cottoned on and have done for years and years uh, to the fact that, that, you know, you have to deal with the whole thing. The majority of majority of treatment centers there deal with that, but we're still, you know, quite behind. And, and I think that it's, it's not a conspiracy, the, the, the attitude of the medical profession mm. and the lack of depth in addiction treatment. So in, in other words, if you're talking to a professional, if you don't, if you've just come out of a treatment center and gone to work as a therapist, then you're a therapist and you don't have any qualifications. No doctor with us is going to take any notice of you. Yeah. you know, we need to educate ourselves to a level where people take it seriously. And the medical profession just does not, you know, they just don't understand addiction. They certainly don't understand um, codependence. And, you know, I've been to several conferences. I went to, to one, um, I remember a famous one, Durham. And, you know, the, the attitude of the people there was, well, these bloody addicts. You know, mm. um, this was NHS. Yeah, yeah. These bloody addicts, and and they were drinking and smoking dope and you know carousing, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, so there's still a lot of misinformation uh, about the problem, and um, certainly you know if you if you deal with addicts as the front line of I guess is is um, uh, A and E, and A and E people have very little um, time for people who come in with yeah. problems caused by alcohol. You know, they just pain in the backside. Yeah, yeah. Um, but fundamentally missing that the person who's who's doing that is just terrified. Yeah. And it's it's kind of I was almost thinking of, you know, going back to childhood, that notion of children need boundaries. And actually that's a really important part of attachment. But when children learn you're bad, nothing yeah. changes there's no good can come of that for me. And in a way, perhaps that same thing of, and it may not be coming from a specific place of wanting to cause harm, but a sense of you're bad for doing that when actually the person is really hurting and how to separate, okay, there's consequences to this, but actually there's a reason for it. And I get that you're hurting. I mean, I guess compassion comes in it for me, which you talk about again in your book and definitely need to explore that in more detail. But Something you said earlier this resonates the difference between, say, shame based motivation or fear based motivation and a compassionate based motivation. It's not about not taking a responsibility. How do we integrate, you know, this sense of, again, what feels quite dogmatic in the sense of there might be the, the school of addiction that says if you get clean and subscribe to this notion, everything's fine and it's ignoring life and being a human being. Whereas the other school is saying, addiction isn't a thing just do this i mean i yeah even as i'm saying that now it feels why is that happening <laughs> i i think I, I i know why you know i i can't prove that i'm right um hmm. so i'm just voice in in in, in the wits of many who have strong feelings about it just from my experience uh, as a recovering addict and as a therapist over 26 years and 36 years in recovery that a lot of this stuff is blindingly obvious yeah, and so blindingly obvious that people can't see it. Thus, we look for complicated reasons for a problem to, to exist and we'll like, over, yeah. over complicate it. I once uh, went to a, um, a UCASAD conference and uh, there was a professor of medicine from the States who said, we have isolated addiction. We know where it comes from. And when wax lyrical about what happens in the brain chemistry and all the rest of it. And yeah. somebody asked him, well, what about what about gambling, mate? And he said, uh, that's not addiction. All right. Huh? Yeah, it's a really it's a really complex one for sure. And I'm kind of thinking this sense of 
perhaps it's not about looking for the exact answer, but just a more of a, a helpful integration between all the people who are doing the research and the treatment coming, sort of coming together, which seems to be, yeah, in, in many, I guess, not just in therapy, but in many areas of life, um, I guess it's the ego parts coming in and there being a better or worse way. What was it that um, led you to writing your book, Who Says I'm an Addict? How did that come about? I had worked at the Priory for 10 years and seen lots of people go through treatment. And then I got a, a message from a guy who had a treatment. And um, he said, I, I just want to tell you that you know, meeting you was fundamental to my recovery, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I'm a journalist, and can I write your biography? Wow. And, and I go, oh, no. <laughs> that's a, I, I can have an ego, but that's an ego too far. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I said, but I would like to write a book on addiction, but I, I'm, I'm not naturally a writer. And he said, well, let's collaborate. So we collaborated, and we wrote the book. So. I would go to his office mm. uh, um, once a week and I would dictate a chapter of the book, which he would transcribe, and he made notes as well. Um, and uh, that's how we wrote the book. And, you know, it came out pretty well. It was certainly a lot, lot better than anything I could. And, you know, he's a lovely, lovely guy. And, and a son of recovery. And, you know, it, these things come when they come, you know. Um, but I'm pleased he came along because it enabled me to put down on paper thoughts that I had about addiction and about the process and about my my particular um, journey um, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. I didn't write it, you know, to be a bestseller um, or to you know um, to make money from it. So I've never made any money. But, um, hmm. I I wrote it so that people could in in the clip in. I wanted to write it in the clearest way because lots and lots of books on therapy and addiction tend to be bogged down with you know stuff. So like quite dense or quite yeah 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 dense and um, you know not easy to understand. Yes, so yeah. I wanted it to be to be easy to be understand to, to be understood, and people tell me that that is the case. And um, but you know it's got good reviews on Amazon. Um, mm. it's never, never going to set the world alight. But, you know, if I can refer someone to it to, to see if there's synergy there, if I, if they come back to me and say, yes, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. Then I know I can help them. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's really great. And I think my experience of, you know, with that, with that book is it's, it's incredibly accessible. It's, it's real. It's authentic. Um, there's a way it's, it's easy to connect to in, in a way, maybe perhaps some of those books are, are not in, in some of the ways you spoke about. So, you know, in that book, we've covered a lot of the, the areas already that, that you've spoken about, but I guess a, a notion that has, we've spoken about so far in this um, conversation is codependency. So like addiction, I'm aware that can be for some quite a, quite a hard thing to define. Um, and certainly I know it's evolved over the years. I'm interested in how you define it your experience of it and treatment recovery yeah if we could open that up a bit so i was running uh, the addiction unit at Power in north london mm. and we had a really fantastic team of people all of the the therapists were either studying for or had master's degrees they were intelligent dedicated people most of them in recovery not all mm. but most and we were having really good results from the program. However, they were going out of the, you know, the program and despite having, we, we had a, a step down um, aftercare process where we would go uh, six, five, four, three, two, one over six weeks. But despite that, people were relapsing. Ostensibly, we're having good recovery. Yeah. And I, I couldn't figure it out. I thought, what is it that's yes. happening? that causes people you know in in, in droves to relapse yeah, yeah. and then um one of my um, one of the people working with me said 
does this lady in America and has a relapse prevention program? Her name's Pia Melody, and she works at the Meadows. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Anything that, that will stop the relapse process yeah. got to be worthwhile. So um, she went out to do the training, came back and said, you have to go and see this. You mm. have to go and do this training. So then I went out with two of us, two other members of my staff, and I got to Arizona, and we're in this, this hotel, uh, and Pia Melody is starting talking. And after the first three hours in the morning, I was feeling very, very, very uncomfortable. To the point where I said, I don't know how I can do this. I feel like I'm getting on the plane and going home. Yeah. And she said, don't do that. Let me demonstrate. I've got to demonstrate the techniques. Let me demonstrate, use you, and see what happens. And um, four and a half days later, you know, I was transformed. It was the one of the most emotionally painful things I've ever done. The yeah. in bits, falling yeah. apart in front of twenty um, uh, master's degree and PhD uh, qualified therapists. And but it was wonderful. Mm. And that's that started me down a path. I thought that I could use some of this stuff with some of my clients. And 12 months later, I realized that I, I needed to use it on all my clients, give or take. You know, I'm not saying that I'm a single issue for nothing, but, but by and large, you can see it writ large when somebody... But what I learned was that if you need to know what's wrong with somebody, don't look at what they're doing now. Look at their history. Look yeah. at their childhood. And, and her book spells it out. Um, it's it's written in in Americanese, so it's it can be difficult to access. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. But bless yeah. her, you know. And and I saw her about a year after I did the course, and I said, "I'm using this with the majority of my patients." And she said, "I believe it's the human condition." Yeah. So it's it's like there is a label, but actually it affects most of the human population in a sense. Not, not everybody will. Um, act out addictively, no. but those who are more susceptible, i.e. more sensitive, yeah. might be the population that we're, we're looking at. Um, so I, you know, I took that on board, and, and she says, and I think she's probably right, that codependence is not having a good relationship with yourself, i.e. outside of the herd, not part of, on your own, trying to yeah. make sense of the world. And so what? why do you think Given there are so many, I'm almost sort of picturing branches of this, and that's how I often think about codependency. As you say, what what happened then? There's attachment disorder. There's l loss of self. Do you feel that's the most helpful label for it? You know, d does that have you found that confuses some people? Because I guess if for anyone listening to this, I'm aware it, it is quite a big. It is a big area. I mean, and that's going back to what you said about. Um, people being scared of accessing that, you know, that can be healthcare professionals, but it can be people as well, perhaps putting down a substance and, and learning. There's a lot more down there. I'm a bit scared. I'm not going there. Like it is, as you say, you're in bits. I, I really recognize that it's, it's painful. It's, um, was it the, uh, the old sort of John Bradshaw thing? It's the original pain work, isn't it? I guess in a way, but yeah, for, for anyone and listening. And the title of the book is so accurate. Healing the shame that binds us. Yeah, sort of bang on, really. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the labels people put on it, attachment edge, I, I am reluctant to sort of say um, certain things because people will, of oh, course. Oh, oh, oh. Um, but, but I think attachment theory is just another word for codependence. No, I think that's a really, it's, it's so useful because I guess we're all human beings trying to do our best. But there's just there's so much wounding and um another another person i had on on the third uh, on the um podcast who, who comes to mind is the the canadian therapist pat de young i don't know if you know her and she that sort of notion that she did relational psychotherapy we're relational beings we're part of a herd and remember how she was saying it and it, it kind of it feels like in line with what you were saying there can be these big these big things. And I guess I'm thinking, okay, here's alcohol. Here's a really 
known traumatic incident or episode. It's like, of course, of course those matter. But she was kind of saying it's those relational misses. It's those losses that just add up and add up and add up and add up. And that's kind of what I make up, you know, you're saying really here is it's that there's nothing wrong with getting it wrong every now and again. I mean, the old sort of Winnicott thing of the good enough parent, you know, in a way, I guess a lot of people with codependency have probably modeled perfectionism, perhaps the Oxbridge thing. If you don't get it right, you're, you're bad. So it's not about going the complete other way. Um, but at the same time, recognizing the impact of those losses, the more that stuff happens, the more the baby screams and isn't tended to, they have to adapt. And actually it's a pretty amazing thing. The brain does because if they didn't do that, they might not have survived it. You know, we haven't explicitly named survival, but I guess it's kind of, it's been in the air about what we're saying, right? Uh, the, 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 the trauma reduction program, um, at the Meadows, which they do every week, 51 weeks a year, um, is called survivors. Uh, and, you know, for good reason, I, I think that we, we survive. Um, our survival techniques might not be the best, but yeah. at least they survive. Going kind of, you know, between addiction, codependency, and that obviously there's, there's such a link there for anyone listening who might have, or, and, you know, in your experience, when you work with people, perhaps with a family member who is in active addiction, who's engaged in an addictive cycle or any kind of disordered behavior, you know, I want to be mindful of, of labels as well, like in this, how would you say that that person can support the other person in a way that is compassionate? Like we said, you know, earlier yet not enabling. And I guess this goes back to my point of the child who needs boundaries but needs to know they're okay you just you can't smash the wardrobe up that's not okay but you're okay if, if that makes sense this is a bit controversial but by the very nature of the fact that that somebody that's got an addictive process might be um using that addictive process as a coping strategy for something they didn't get in their childhood so the parents you know parents quite universally feel that they must be responsible not always, but quite often they do. Yes. And their response to it can be very codependent. So, yeah. you know, um, they throw money at it or they pat them on the head and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, actually, uh, I, I think that the best thing that families can do is treat the, the child as their child. Let other people deal with their addiction because trying to deal with something that you don't understand um, can very often lead to you know, relapse and you know, enabling and, and yeah, yeah. So, so you know the best results from therapy always come when the, the therapy is applied to the person with the addiction or whatever, um, mm. but also their families. Um, if you don't deal with the families, then you're you are putting somebody back into uh, a, a traumatic process. Yeah. Because it's, it won't evolve <clears throat> whatever just, they picked you know, up. Well, it just so, continues. Yeah. The sort of the, so, the cyclical nature. So my, my, my pet soapbox uh, moment. Um, if you take a child at seven years old and you put it, you take it away from its parents and you put it into a school you were doing two things you're abandoning it and you're imprisoning it it, it gets traumatized by the effect now then what the coping mechanism is because it's been the coping mechanism for eons is oh after a fortnight oh it's okay i'm happy the the, the, the fellows here are good and i've got a good team of people and blah 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 blah, blah because there is no alternative and it can severely damage uh, someone, there's, uh, there's a colleague, well, you might know, but I won't mention his name, who okay. his practice is to deal with um, public school syndrome, where people are traumatized by their experience. The, the, the downside to it is that they pretty much make up the government and the opposition. I, I despair. Um, because if you traumatize somebody and they find a coping mechanism, very often the coping mechanism is not to feel. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's so wise and, and again, authentic. It that's just comes through in everything you share. And I'm always thinking of 
how complex this stuff can be, but actually, if it was taken back to simplicity, the issue is hard, but there's more simplicity in kind of yeah. moving forward, if that makes sense. And this, this in a way, you know, we're kind of coming towards the end, but and it, it might have to be another conversation sometime, but the kind of the notion of process addictions, that which isn't okay. You know, if someone is at death's door, people might take action. It might not be the best action, but that notion of if somebody is crippled mentally with something that society has deemed okay, it's so much more complicated. And that notion, and, and that's something that always sort of comes up for me when it's the same stuff going on. And if you took all of that away, and I, I recognize there's probably not necessarily a way of doing this, much like in the therapy room, we don't have an MRI machine to go, there it is, that's the issue, this is what you need to do. So that's, it seems like it's a really hard one to navigate. And it, Sort of came well, up it, it's because people observe what what addicts do and yeah. can't make sense of it. Yeah. There's no sense to be made of it because it's not cognitive. It's yeah. limbic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's your amygdala switching off your, your cortex and, and acting out in a very primitive but life, supposedly yeah. life-saving way. So, you know, why does he keep doing it? Yeah. Because he knows what's going to happen. Well, of course. Yeah. But yeah. you know, that doesn't make it the slightest bit of difference when your when your mm. amygdala is triggered, fear or anxiety, whatever it happens to be, the trauma. And then it, it it does what it's always done. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so how do you um I was wanting to ask you this. So thirty six years in recovery, I mean incredible. Um twenty twenty six years working as a therapist. You know, clearly someone who is lived experience, wise, you know, can hear you, you know your stuff. How do you look after yourself and what do you utilize? So where, say, a 12-step fellowship can give you some stuff but not other bits and where another school doesn't, how, how do you kind of, how do you make sense of it all to look after yourself? Well, sometimes badly. Yeah. <laughs> because one of the one of the, the, the traumas, the traumatic processes uh, for me was having no self-worth. Yeah. And I still struggle with, uh, with fear and, and, and self, lack of self-worth. Mm. Um, I might know or believe strongly that I'm right about certain things, but, but that doesn't mean that I'm always self-assured. For that reason, I hate public speaking. Because I'm waiting for someone to go, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I still go to AA, um, and I hope I will till the day I die. Um, I, I'm surrounded by people in the industry, and um, I have good friends who are my tribe. They're mostly therapists, but there are some, you know, some uh, renegades. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, but people who have done trauma work, are the most reliable source of support because they're not basing their 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 um, interactions with you on hearsay bullshit. You know, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's real. It's real. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Uh, and you know, um, I run a group on Monday evenings for people who've been through trauma programs, and it is the most amazing group. It mm. is so full of transparency and honesty it blows me away yeah i've never experienced it anywhere else no it's so powerful and we're and, going back to what you said about um the kind of you know whether it's praying it away or this or that you know how do you navigate that now you know where you are in your recovery so you attend well, meetings how, how do you kind of filter it total, out i'm a total and utter atheist yeah I do believe in God as a group of drunks because the, 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 the key, the thing that AA has never been able to sort of see in itself is that just being at a meeting means I belong. Yeah. And the combined wisdom of the, the you know, just, just being in a group with, with people who are being honest lets my, um, my amygdala calm down. And yeah. my sense of well-being comes up, and I'm I'm okay, and I don't have a problem with that. But if anybody else does, well, that's their problem. But you know, I, I I 
conventional sort of guy in the sky. I, I just can't. I'm no, it's it's, and I wonder if you could could say that again. I the your your acronym for for God. You, you said I didn't quite hear Group that. Group of trunks. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I guess it's that sort of relational thing in a way, trying to overthink something that actually just being in the room and kind of stopping the talky bit. Um, and it's it's really inspiring to hear you because whether it's a 12-step program or even somebody embarking on a, a deep meditation adventure. There are many schools within meditation that can be very secular. Some can go into the kind of more religious parts, which can be really yeah. uncomfortable, I recognize, because actually this sense of sit down and be with what is, but now do it this way, there's a perhaps a bit of a contradiction and a paradox, which, you know, for me, you know, as someone who also has an ongoing journey with 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 self-worth. You know, I recognize that can be quite hard. Am I getting it wrong? Am I doing it right? Oh, which isn't great for the amygdala process, probably um, either. It's kind of so, yeah. Well, one of the things that, that um, the, the model teaches us is to um, recognize a functioning adult. Yeah. Other people's opinions about what that is are very important. But if you can keep in your head mm. good bits about you, then when you get something bad, it stops you falling into a wounded place, like a four-year-old place. It works very effectively. Yeah. And, you know, back to, to groups for a second. Yes. We are so, it's so obvious, this, that, that yeah. people just don't see it. Mm. For most things in life, if you have a hobby of any description, there's a group for it. Yeah. It's not by accident. It's where no. we feel comfortable. It's where we belong. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's a bit like, you know, we've spoken about books, and I'm, I'm looking at my bookshelf, and there's abundance of stuff that I recognize I can think, oh, I'll check that, check that. But actually, it's about getting out there and doing it with other people in a way. You know, all, the, all that stuff is important. But I recognize sitting in an isolated room reading about connection is probably not going to give me the same connection as actually perhaps, you know, clumsily sometimes going out and, trying it and falling over a bit like a child kind of needs yeah. being picked up and you know uh led well, as a result compassion. of my my trauma i mm. have what pmr calls wounds so i have a, a very small four-year-old little boy who's terrified and i have a 16 year old adapted adult uh, it looks like an adult but actually it's just an adapted version of the, the wounded child and yeah. he goes fuck you and the horse you rode in on yeah as a coping mechanism does he still do that he can do yeah um, <laughs> but, but uh, what I'm, I, i've tried to do over the years and succeeded fairly well is to have the two of them sitting in my heart holding hands so that there is no need for the adapted adult to try and fix everything and that the wounded child feels sufficiently cared for that it doesn't trigger a response. No, that's really, really lovely. And I could really picture that as you were saying that. It's um, so important. Could you, um, going to ask you, going to do a bit of word association, if that's okay, as I do this with all my guests, if that's all right. But before we do that, you know, you've spoken about the power of groups and you run a group, you run groups, uh, Peer Melody. I'll put some stuff in the um, episode description uh, for links, certainly to your book and and anything else. I was wondering that you might steer people towards, you know, as part of their journey or who wanted to learn a bit more, perhaps. Is there anything that you would kind of... Well, um, there could be my book, bits about it in there. Yeah. Um, there's Pierre Melody's book called Facing Codependence, which yeah. is, you know, the... the uh, um, the most important book on codependence I've ever read. Yeah. Um, Coda mm -hmm. is a good scholarship. Um, so it's Codependence Anonymous, yeah. Yes. Um, obviously, you're not going to be able to deal with anything to do with your codependence if you're acting out. So yeah. if you're in the middle of an addictive process, you need to get help to stop that. And then when you stopped it, which is, it's, it's, it's almost counterintuitive because you think, well, if the, if the problem is codependence, why not fix the codependence and then deal with the addiction? Yeah, yeah. But, but you're not available. If you're using no. something, you're just not available. No. <clears throat> so unfortunately, it, it, it works backwards. 
uh, but you, you need to get help and find help where the person helping you is not telling you X, Y, Z, but has an affinity with you. you yeah. Know, the, the, um, um, the, the, the alliance between a therapist uh, and a patient is absolutely paramount. If it's not there, then it's not going to work. Yeah, so important. Because, because people have to trust. Well, I guess, and that's going back to that, the unhelpfulness of sort of dogma and being told, which they may have experienced growing up and actually just that sense of being heard, learning to be able to trust, having autonomy, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, well, I mean, thank you so much for, for coming on, David. This has been fantastic. I feel like I've learned so much and really it's like I had a lot of this stuff written down, but it just it just happened between our conversation it was quite amazing. You, you, we just both kind of went there, which is, I don't know, for me, that's the relational part in a way. <laughs> just like to say one thing that was important to me, Robert Lefebvre has always been a bit of a maverick, but mm. he understood the addictive process a long time before any treatment. And he's on the first day of my traineeship, and on Saturday morning, I went into a group with Robert and he said, recovery, is living comfortably with unresolved issues. The simplicity of that yeah, and yeah. the enormity of that has never, never gone out of my mind. No, oh, I'm really glad you mentioned that, and it just feels so wise, yet so simple. <laughs> I, I still, I, 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 when I, if I do a talk anywhere, I feel like I'm not saying anything because it's very simple. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But, but the majority of people don't, can't, or won't, or you know, are so caught up with their own process that they can't hear it. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely. Well, before I let you go, something I do with all my guests is ask them to uh, partake in some word association. And this seems quite relevant given the idea of not overthinking and just seeing what, what happens. Are, are, you, are you open to doing a bit of that? Yeah, sure. Fantastic. Right. I'll, I'll say a word. I've got about six. Um, and just, yeah, I invite you to say the first thing that comes up for you. Um, so here we go. Child. Trauma. Book. Pay uh, melody. Hunger. Need. Money. Um, ability. Friendly. Wonderful. And lastly, voyage. Journey. Oh, that's nice to hear your your responses. There. How was that for you? Um, okay. Um, when I said. Um, about money. Um, money is a great facilitator of recovery. Yeah. And unfortunately, and I've always worked in the private sector where lots of people can't afford it, lots of people yeah. struggle with it, and those that have it will spend it. But it's, it's a great pity that it's not more available to more people. Yeah, I, t I, I sort of often randomize these ones, and I saw that that word on there, and it, I recognize it, it brought up a lot for me in just that one word. Um, well, thank you so much, David. Uh, it's been an absolute privilege speaking with you. Really enjoyed getting to know you a bit more um, and just mm. kind of oh. learning from you. So um, thanks for coming on, and I hope to see you again soon. Oh, yeah, let's meet again. Thanks, thank David. Bye. Wow. Thank you so much, David. It was as I said, a real privilege to speak with, with him. I felt I learned so much. It's, it's, you know, codependency, trauma, attachment, that they're areas where I have a real interest in, um, and they really resonate for me. So to talk with someone who's so open about their own experience and we just bring such wisdom and also feel an excitement as well. Like this is, this is where we are. There are some things that that are going well, but perhaps there's some some areas in mental health treatment that need to be looked at. You know, it, it's it's exciting as well as you know at times frustrating. As David uh, mentioned, I will include a link to David's book, Who Says I'm an Addict, as well as some more um, links below. David mentioned Pia Melody in the book Facing Codependence, and he spoke about the Twelve Step Fellowship Codependence Anonymous. Um, you can find more about that online. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you got something out of it. And if you feel anyone might benefit from listening to this episode, please do feel free to share. Drop me a line, 
let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you again next time. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioural Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett. Edited by Tom Worrell. You've been listening to the Journey Home podcast.